Hello, and welcome to HipCast. Today's title is Hip Tips, sharing expert tips from clinicians in hip fracture care. And today it's the turn of the orthopaedic surgeons. My name is Catherine McDougall. I'm an orthopaedic surgeon at Metro North in Brisbane. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Turrbal people as the traditional custodians of the land where I am based and share my acknowledgements to elders past, present and emerging. Today, to share our hip tips from orthopaedics, I have two wonderful orthopaedic surgeons joining me, Dr. Ruth Farrell from Rockhampton Base Hospital and Dr. Chris Wall from Toowoomba Base Hospital. Welcome, Ruth and Chris. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Kat. Okay, well, let's talk top tips. Ruth, we're going to start with you. Your first top tip relates to analgesia for our hip fracture patients. Yep, so tip number one is administration of nerve blocks um, in the ED department. Uh, And this is because we know that too many opiates, particularly in this elderly population, um, can cause all sorts of problems. And so some good analgesia in the form of a nerve block performed in a setting where there's um, backup in case um, on the very rare occasion they do have a reaction to the block, um, you can deal with it. And therefore, um, providing these nerve blocks early on in these patients' care um, gives excellent analgesia uh, in a very safe way. That's great. In Toowoomba, do you do nerve blocks in the ED, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So generally the emergency department staff do that, um, but occasionally our anaesthetic department staff will help with that as well. Um, but I agree that they're great for pain relief and, um, and uh, you know, keep our, our neck of femur patients comfortable while they're waiting for surgery. Excellent. Okay, so both of you work in regional centres and they provide broader services to some rural, rural areas. Uh, tip number two, Chris, is particularly relevant in the regions. Yeah, so tip number two, Kath, is uh, uh, using a rural NOF pathway. So one of the challenges facing both uh, Ruth and I as surgeons in regional areas that our our hospitals um, uh, drain very large catchment areas. In fact, in Toowoomba, over 50% of our patients who sustain neck of femur fractures initially present to a peripheral emergency department. And some of those emergency departments are actually over 800 kilometres away. So as a department, we've developed a rural NOF pathway uh, to assist our colleagues in the peripheral EDs uh, to ensure that the patients receive appropriate initial workup and management. It also allows for good communication between the hospitals um, and facilitates the appropriate documentation um, going with the patient during their transfer. So this uh, document is a 27 box, um, a checkbox document. It's available in all of the regional emergency departments and includes things like uh, documenting a resuscitation plan, uh, appropriate x-rays and blood tests, uh, a full medical assessment, uh, including documentation of current medications. Um, As Ruth mentioned, administration of a nerve block, um, placement of an indwelling catheter, Um, and also a a drip um, and intravenous fluids running, among other things. Uh, We find that this really helps um, uh, patients in the transfer and and it allows, it means that when they arrive in Toowoomba, they're essentially worked up and ready to go to theatre. And this has improved um, timing um, for these patients. So ideally, we want to be operating on them within 48 hours of injury 
Um, and that can be really challenging for us in regional centres when our, where our patients are coming from, you know, a long way away. Um, but it has helped us to try and optimise timing. Um, we're very happy to share this NOF pathway with uh, anyone who's interested. So if you, if you would like a copy, please feel free to get in touch with me. That's a really great program, Chris, and an excellent uh, way to manage our, our rural and regional patients. You know, Chris, once they get to uh, ED or people that are local that have presented just in the ED, is there anything particular or any tips you have for initial review of these patients? Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, tip number three, I suppose, is around initial review. So we can't control the weather and we can't control aircraft availability, but for patients that are transferred or for patients that are presenting initially to our hospital, we can um, look at optimising um, the uh, initial management and work up of the patients to get them to theatre as soon as possible. We've implemented a couple of strategies in Toowoomba um, to try and improve our uh, throughput to theatre. The first one is employing a number of uh, senior house officers um, and they're on call between 7am and 9pm and they're essentially available to uh, immediately review the patients in the emergency department to commence the initial workup and management of these patients, uh, to liaise with the appropriate teams in terms of surgical anaesthetic um, theatre teams um, to optimise the timing. We've also got an excellent orthogeriatric service uh, in Toowoomba and they're available in business hours and they will often go down to the emergency department themselves and review the patients there. Uh, and this facilitates um, timely medical workup of our patients so that they are optimised and that there's no delays in getting them to, um, to theatre within that 48 hours. We always strive to achieve um, surgery within 48 hours of time of injury. Um, but for Ruth and I in, in the regional centres, this can be challenging with, um, with patient transfers from, from uh, long distances. Uh, but what we can do is try and improve the um, throughput once they hit our hospital. So that's something that we're, we're really, um, we've worked on hard. That's great, Chris. And I know, Ruth, in Rockhampton, it's even more challenging to get a geriatric review. And a lot of our smaller sites around the country don't have access to geriatricians. Um, how do you arrange uh, sort of expedient review for these NOF patients at the time of arrival and emergency in Rocky? Um, so our patients are reviewed by the orthopaedic team to start with. And if they look like a patient who are going to be medically complicated, then we'll get the normal adult medical team to um, review these patients. And it's normally shared care between um, the two um, subspecialties um, to try and give them the best possible outcome we can. That's great. Okay, on to tip number four. Now, Ruth, you're a big one for this. It's never too early to start planning discharge, is it? Um, absolutely. So tip four is discharge planning from admission. So we know that um, having a hip fracture means that these patients' mobility is going to be significantly um, compromised for a period of time. And this is particularly relevant for these patients who normally live in their own home prior to their injury. Um, often a nursing home patient, you can get back to near baseline fairly quickly and the nursing home will accept them back. But the patients that are going to need either enhanced care at home or a period of rehabilitation um, before they can go home, or even um, more problematic is the patients that have been just struggling at home um, and are now no longer going to be able to cope at home. And it's identifying these patients early and starting the process of looking at nursing home placement, because we know otherwise 
these patients um, end up filling acute orthopedic beds um, for many, many weeks while we're waiting for um, a nursing home placement to become available. So it's a conversation that you start with a family on day one um, of the injury um, to start that ball rolling. That's great. And, and certainly independent of the size of the allied health and support teams you have around you. Um, So you could be from a small regional place or a larger metro hospital. Uh, That ability to start the the discussion around discharge planning uh, is important independent of where you are and and anyone can do it. So, you know, we as orthopaedic surgeons see that as a really important role as well. That's great. Um, Chris, when we come to tip number five, uh, you know, we want to ensure that we have good supervision and we can reduce time to time within theatre for our NOF patients. Um, how do you go about that in Toowoomba? Yeah, so, um, Kath, I suppose tip number six is uh, surgery within hours, ideally on dedicated lists. So we've got a bit of an unwritten rule in Toowoomba that um, patients with neck or femur fractures should be operated on in hours. Um, and this allows the um, availability of both consultant anaesthetics um, but, and also consultant surgeons um, uh, to appropriately supervise these cases. Um, I am aware that in some hospitals in Queensland and around Australia, uh, they have actually dedicated neck or femur fracture lists which are consultant supervised. We probably don't quite have the volume of um, cases to justify that in our hospital. Um, But what we do do is we prioritise neck or femur fractures on our emergency board and on our uh, rostered trauma lists, Um, ideally to get them operated on within their first day of presentation. Um, But if it doesn't happen within their first day, we then up-categorise these patients to ensure that they are operated on uh, within the 48-hour time period from their admission to our department. And Ruth, in Rockhampton, you too have a smallish site and so it's not possible to have a dedicated NOF lift. How do you prioritise NOF patients to ensure they get to, to surgery in the shortest amount of time possible um yeah similar to chris we we dream of having an off list but unfortunately uh, haven't got that so we normally try and identify these patients the day before if we can as being the sort of number one golden patient um for the trauma list uh, or the emergency list um so that we um can make sure the anesthetic team have reviewed them preoperatively and there's no barriers to um getting the patient sort of first up in theater um that next day um, and then again, if they come in during the day, we try and get them done in daylight hours that day, if at all possible. And I guess the additional benefit of identifying someone the evening before for first on the list is that lack of unnecessary fasting as well, which we know is very detrimental to this patient population. Okay, I'm going to say... Sorry, I was going to say they're nutritionally deplete before we've even started. So, you know, unnecessarily fasting is is a bad idea. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to take tip number six myself. And and tip number six is that to consider hemiarthroplasty even in high-functioning patients. Um, And this is important, I think, and it's been an area where there's been some change in research in recent years. I think with the... Um, publication of the health study in New England Journal of Medicine, and there were several Australian sites part of that. It demonstrated that the functional improvements from a total hip 
weren't quite as significant comparatively to a hemiarthroplasty as we all expected. Um, when we look at our own NJRR results, sort of revision, um, cumulative revision at 10 years for uh, total hip replacement diagnosis fractured NOF is in fact a little worse than for a bipolar hemiarthroplasty. And so um, for me, when a total hip is a bigger operation, takes longer, higher risk of complications and is also more expensive, I think, uh, you know, considering hemiarthroplasty is an option, particularly with our elderly population, uh, is an important way forward for us. And I know personally that's something that I've been, um, my practice has changed over the last 10 years and I'm now doing more hemis in this population group when previously I had you know, done total hips for a lot of community ambulators. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Kath, I'm a big fan of bipolar hemiarthroplasties as well. I think the, uh, as you've identified, the, the AOA National Joint Replacement Registry um, data on longevity for bipolar hemiarthroplasties for patients um, that have had a neck of femur fracture is, is really excellent. Um, so I, I use them um, quite a bit. Um, there are circumstances where I would still use a total hip arthroplasty, but um, I do use bipolars quite a bit, um, even in those um, younger independently community ambulant patients. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it probably stems as well from that original data coming from when they were still putting in Austin Moores and Thompsons and things where, you know, we, we know that they had no offset and um, sort of functionally were pain relieving sort of spaces and not much else. And so now that the implants we're putting in are a lot more sophisticated, um, patients are doing a lot better with them. Yeah, that's right. Well, that cumulative um, percent revision is approximately 7% at 10 years for a bipolar for diagnosis fractured NOS. So that's a, you know, it's pretty good longevity. Um, you know, we're going to stick to the technical components of uh, hip fractures then. When we're looking at whether we should be uh, cementing or uncementing a stem. You touched on the Austin, Austin Moors. Uh, really, Chris, now there's quite strong evidence to support the use of cement for the femur in NOF patients. What are your thoughts on that and heading to tip number seven? Yeah, yeah, great question, Cass. So tip number seven is, is using cement for uh, either hemiarthroplasties or total hyparthroplasties for patients that have sustained a neck of femur fracture. So for the non-surgeons in the audience, one of the considerations we have when performing a joint replacement is how do we fix the implants to the bone? Broadly speaking, we have two options, uh, and that is to use an uncemented implant uh, or to use a cemented implant. So taking a femoral stem for a hip replacement, as an example, uh, for an uncemented implant, we need to obtain an initial press fit of the prosthesis into the medullary canal of the femur, and then we rely on the bone to ingrow onto the surface of the prosthesis. Now, this is a great option in certain circumstances, but for elderly patients with osteoporosis who have already demonstrated their um, propensity to fracture, there is actually an increased risk of intraoperative or early postoperative femoral fracture around an uncemented stem. Now, this has the downside of requiring either uh, prolonged initial surgery or, or repeat surgery, and also the potential for uh, requiring a period of non-weight bearing in a patient um, who, for whom a period of non-weight bearing is probably going to be detrimental. Uh, 
So as you mentioned, Kath, the consensus in the literature is now strongly in favour of the use of uh, cemented femoral stems for either hemiarthroplasties or total hip arthroplasties. So cement um, basically allows immediate fixation of the implant into the femoral canal uh, without the need for forceful stem insertion, uh, and this reduces that fracture risk. And interestingly, Kath, I know that in one of your other roles with the Get It Right First Time program, you've audited the use of cement in uh, neck of femur fractures in Queensland. Um, and I believe it's now over 98% of NOFs um, that have either hemiarthroplasties or total hip arthroplasties are now cemented. So I think the word is getting out. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think um, people have been concerned in the past um, uh, anaesthetists particularly and, and some physicians in general about the potential of sort of uh, fat embolus syndrome related to cementing. But um, there's certainly strong evidence uh, now that cementing is, is the, the best way forward for this group of patients. Um, and for people that are interested, the British Hip Society has a document about how to safely cement in this group. And, and we do it a little bit differently uh, for the hip fracture, more vulnerable patient population compared to the younger elective population where we want uh, a good solid cement mantle. And we'll attach that to this podcast. Okay, so towards the end of the operation now, Ruth, any tips related to closure and dressings? Um, so, yes, yeah, so this leads on to um, tip number eight, um, and that's to avoid clips and bulky dressings, particularly in those confused patients. So I'm quite passionate about my wound closures um, and my juniors often wonder why that is. Uh, and apart from the fact that it's the bit that the patient sees on the outside and therefore they'll probably judge how good a job you've done on the inside as to what it looks like on the outside. I think for this patient population, we know an infection in this joint would be catastrophic um, and basically fatal um, that they, you know, some of them struggle to get through the first anesthetic repeat washouts and things like this is not an option for them. So we need to get this right first time. Um, and so I think a meticulous closure and then um, with sub subcuticular sutures, um, some glue and steri strips and then a nice flat dressing. Um, one makes it a watertight closure and two for the confused patients, there's nothing there for them to feel that they've had anything done to the side of their leg. Whereas if they can feel the clips and particularly after sort of seven to 10 days, the clips start getting itchy, they start picking at their wounds. And that's the um, big problem with then introducing infection to this region as well. So meticulous, careful closure um, with um, sensible dressings over the top to try and minimize the risk of getting an infection here. That's a really good tip. Okay, we'll move on to tip number nine, and, and that is that any surgical intervention should allow full weight bearing. We know this population cannot partial weight bear. It is really almost Im impossible for them. Um, Chris, why do you think, you know, allowing full weight bearing is important? Yeah, so our tip number nine is um, full weight bearing. So the majority of uh, our patients with necrophrenia fractures are elderly, uh, they're frail, and they're often comorbid. And what we know is that in this cohort of patients, a period of non-weight bearing is detrimental to them. Uh, it increases the risk of post-operative complications like DVTs and PEs, chest infections, pressure injuries. I um, mean, it actually has been shown to carry a higher mortality rate. 
So it's really critically important for us as surgeons when we're choosing um, an operation, whether it be a fixation option or an arthroplasty option, uh, that we perform an operation that will allow our patients to immediately place full weight through their um, operated limb. This will facilitate earlier mobilisation, uh, a reduction in complications and earlier discharge from hospital, uh, which is really in everyone's best interests. That's great. And, and finally, we, we're going to move on to our tip number 10, and, and that's the importance of the multidisciplinary team. Um, and back over to you, Chris. Yes, okay. At, uh, in Toowoomba, we're actually really proud to have been one of the pilot sites for the ANZ Hip Fracture Registry. Um, in 2016, we set up a, a multidisciplinary necrofracture team, um, and that included members of the orthopaedic department, the orthogeriatric department, the anaesthetic department, also members from our nursing and allied health teams, um, and also importantly, a member of our hospital executive team as well. Uh, we meet monthly to discuss our performance, and we're always looking at ways that we can improve our performance as we care for these patients. Um, we found having the director of anaesthetics uh, as part of our team has been really helpful for us to communicate uh, with our anaesthetic uh, colleagues um, to highlight the importance of timely surgery for these patients. And we've also been able to negotiate rationalisation of the need for preoperative investigations such as echocardiograms. Currently, we're sort of uh, ironing out a, um, an agreed plan about um, the, the uh, timely surgery for patients on anticoagulant medication. And I know, Kath, you, you're a, um, a bit of a, an industry leader in this area as well. Another thing that we found really helpful um, in Toowoomba is having a member of the hospital executive as part of that team. Um, and this has been really helpful to, to facilitate funding, uh, for example, expansion of our orthogeriatric service, um, and it also facilitates the cutting of red tape, so to speak, uh, where that needs to be cut. So we've found um, having a multidisciplinary team really valuable, and um, I'd, I'd strongly encourage the other departments who are hearing this to consider this as well. That's great, Chris. Um, well, thank you to Chris and Ruth for the terrific work you're doing um, managing the vulnerable group, the, the fractured off patients, and particularly for your leadership in the regional areas. To our audience, thank you very much for joining us today. We've covered the whole patient journey in our HIPCAST top tips for orthopedics. But in summary, our 10 top tips are, number one, administration of nerve blocks in ED. Number two, a rural NOF pathway. Tip number three, orthogeriatric, uh, assessment or medical assessment and ortho review at time of referral in daylight hours where possible. Number four, discharge planning from admission. Number five, surgery in hours on ideally a dedicated NOF list. Number six, consider hemiarthroplasty even in high functioning patients. Number seven, femoral stem should be cemented in hemiarthroplasty and total hip replacement. Number eight, meticulous closure, avoiding clips and bulky dressings. Number nine, ensuring your surgical intervention allows for full weight bearing. And number 10, a regular NOF working group as part of your multidisciplinary team. You can find the resources mentioned in this episode within the notes. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Wall and Dr. Ruth Farrell for joining us. 
Uh, I'm Catherine McDougall. See you next time on HipCast.